before we jump to today's episode, I wanted to let you know that the Learn Pedestal course is completed. And if you're interested how to build REST API with Clojure using Interceptor's pattern, you can check out learnpedestal.com. Of course, you can also get it as a Clojure Stream subscription, which is at Clojure.stream. And one more thing, if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, you can always do it via GitHub sponsors. All the information in the show notes below. So today we're talking to Paul. Hi, Paul. Hello, Yatsik. Uh, Paul is the author of a book, uh, Seven Concurrency Models in Seven Weeks. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you about concurrency, but we, maybe before we jump there, uh, how about a few words about Paul? Uh, yes, with pleasure. So um, my background is software in general, um, and a lot of what I've done has been in uh, Clojure. Um, the last couple of companies that I've been involved in, we, we used Clojure very uh, very intensively. But right now, um, most of what I'm spending my time on is technical due diligence. So Mm -hmm. I have a a stable of investors who send me into companies before they invest to to check that the the software within the company is is healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And can I ask, how did you end up doing this? Like, what what leads someone to doing such a thing? Uh, With pleasure. So my my entire career has been in startups of, of one sort or another. And if you've ever been involved in startups, you'll know that that's quite intense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I founded a startup, um, what, about eight years ago. We sold it about three years ago. Um, and honestly, I've just had enough. Uh, running startups is, is very, very tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to take a step back. And it just happens that I've got enough contacts who trust me that um, I've managed to, to pivot into this career of doing tech DD, which is working very nicely for me. Very nice. Uh, so um, let's switch gears and talk about concur- concurrency and parallelism and where's the best points to start? Um, well, so you're using those two words. Um, right. And uh, I think in a lot of people's minds, those two are very, uh, very much the same, mm-hmm. but they are different. Um, the way that, that I like to think about it is that parallelism is something to do with the solution domain. So it's to do with what you're implementing in order to solve your problem, mm-hmm. whereas concurrency is to do with the uh, the problem domain. So it's the problem you're trying to solve. Um, so a good example of that might be um, if you're writing software, let's say you're writing a, a, an integrated development environment. That's a, an intrinsically concurrent thing. You you want to be able to pay attention to the user's input. You want to be able to compile their code in the background. You want to be able to report uh, errors when they occur, uh, do syntax highlighting, all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And all of that has to happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what concurrency is about. It's about dealing with more than one thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. But that isn't necessarily the same thing as parallelism. You, you can you can solve a concurrent program with one CPU only doing one thing at a time and time slicing so that it looks like you've got multiple things going on, but really only one thing is happening at a time. Mm-hmm. Parallelism, on the other hand, is about making use of multiple computing resources, normally but not always different CPUs. Um, in order to make your program run more quickly. Um, so an example there, a good example might be 
uh, graphics programming, if you want to increase the brightness of an image, there are several um, million pixels in the image and you need to perform an operation on each one. One way to do that would be to go through the pixels one by one, but a, a faster way to do it would be to use multiple um, CPUs and have one CPU look after, say, the top eighth of the, the image, the next CPU look after the next eighth of the image. Now, that's not a concurrent problem. Um, there's only one image. You're only trying to do one thing to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're using parallelism in order to make the program run more quickly. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, there are hybrids where you're you're doing both parallelism and concurrency but that that i think is the is the fundamental difference between the two things mm-hmm. uh, so in your book uh, you mentioned or you described uh, seven different models uh, for concurrency uh, and um, if we would uh, if we would go about unpacking some of them uh, which one like would we start with um so the the order that we we put them in the book was actually written with exactly that in mind so we we were trying to find a uh, a logical way to go through these different things where the the, the lessons of uh, of one chapter built on the lessons of the of the chapters that that came before it um so i i think inevitably the starting point has to be the traditional threads and locks model, mm-hmm. um, partly because that's what you're most likely to come across you know, in, in, in the wild, and partly because that uh, is the, the model upon which most of the, um, the, the more sophisticated systems are built on top of. So it's always a good idea to understand the, uh, the foundations that you're building on top of. Mm-hmm. So what are threads and locks? Um, so I, I, maybe the easiest way to think about it is that they're pretty much just what goes on in the, uh, in the hardware that you're, you're running on top of with, with a really minimal facade, um, in order to allow you to use them in your, in your language. Uh, so a thread is a thread of control. It's, it's a logical, um, sequence of one operation followed by another, followed by another. Um, it might be implemented by actually having multiple CPUs, one CPU executing each thread, or it might be executed by having threads which time slice on a single CPU. But actually, from the point of view of the programmer, that doesn't really matter very much. Those two things look almost identical. Um, And then locks are the mechanism by which you stop one thread from interfering with the operation of another thread. Um, and the way that you uh, you achieve that is through mutual exclusion. So you have some mechanism, and there are several different of them, but you have some mechanism by which you exclude all but one thread from accessing a resource in memory so that it knows what's, um, what's happening and, and can trust that what it's doing is going to work. Mm-hmm. And what are like pros and cons of thre- threads and locks? Um, the, the, the pro, I guess, is that it's relatively simple to understand and the, the implementation of threads and locks in one language is pretty much the same as the implementation in any other. So if you've understood threads and locks in, say, C, um, then you can take that knowledge and move it over to Java or Ruby or, you know, whichever language you, mm-hmm. you happen to be moving to very straightforwardly. Um, 
and it's, you know it's a very very thin layer over what the what the computer is doing uh, so um you're you're programming quite close to the metal and you can pretty much do anything that the uh the hardware could allow you to do in theory the downside is that it is really really difficult to do accurately and correctly um and i think it's worth emphasizing that fact because um some people some people think that threads and locks is difficult without really appreciating just how difficult it is uh, i think and this is based upon the experience of someone who spent an awful lot of time writing threads and locks code it's basically impossible to create a multi-threaded program using threads and locks and be completely confident that it's accurate mm-hmm. um, there are just so many ways in which you can end up in in trouble and it's so difficult to write tests to find out if you've ended up in trouble. Um, pretty much all threads and locks code is is going to have bugs in it. Um, the only threads and locks code that, that that maybe isn't is the is the code that's exercised really intensively. So mm-hmm. you know, deep down inside the bowels of the operating system, because it gets exercised so intensively and has been developed and debugged over so many years, it's it's that's probably going to work okay. But if you're writing typical application code using threads and locks, I think you're pretty much guaranteed to end up with something with bugs in it. Mm-hmm. And how does functional programming come into the picture when it comes to like threads and locks? And Sure. So um, I, I want to take a, a step back maybe mm-hmm. before before we talk about that and talk about why threads and locks have problems and it, mm-hmm. it basically boils down to one thing which is shared mutable state mm-hmm. whenever you have a variable or something in memory right. that can both change and is shared between two threads mm-hmm. that's when you get into trouble mm-hmm. so that implies that there are two ways of addressing the problem one way is to not share the state so if right. the state is only accessible by one thread now you have no problem because it's there is only one thread that can access it so nothing can nothing can interfere with it mm-hmm. um, and that's the approach that for example the actor model takes mm-hmm. it uh, it avoids sharing state and therefore avoids the, the problems that shared mutual mutable state causes Mm-hmm. functional programming solves the problem not by avoiding sharing but by avoiding mutable state so if you're in a situation where as soon as you have written something to memory it will never change and that's what a function a pure functional language guarantees mm-hmm. now you also have no problem because although the state is shared between multiple threads it's impossible for a thread to modify data that's being created by another thread because no thread no no part of the program can ever modify data that's that's what functional programming is all about is mm-hmm. is avoiding mutation right uh, and when we look at closure and we look at those two things of course closure has immutable data structures uh, so we are sort of trying to solve this problem by not mutating them um, are there any other like advantages in closure uh, that help us to work with this? 
Um, so, so Clojure provides a, a number of. So, I, I guess the first thing to say is that Clojure is not a pure functional language. Mm-hmm. It does provide mutable state, but it provides a very small number of um, mechanisms to implement mutable state. Mm-hmm. And because of the nature of the language, you don't find yourself having to use them very frequently at all. So most of the uh, the operations that you would perform using mutable state in an imperative language like Java, you wouldn't use mutable state to solve in Clojure. So the the effect of that when you're writing concurrent code in Clojure is that you tend to, to do most of your work using immutable data, and you only make use of mutable data right at the very top level of the program for those things that have to be um, uh, visible by more than one thread. Mm -hmm. And typically, you would use that top-level state to share some kind of uh, immutable data structure, um, which uh, which means that, that... the the types of errors you can get yourself into are, are very much more constrained than with a typical um, program language, and then the uh, the tools that it provides are things like um, atoms and uh, shared uh, software transactional uh, memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, in all honesty, I'm I'm not sure it makes a great deal of difference which of those two you use and. The, the functionality of those two things are, is so similar, um, it becomes almost a matter of style more than, more than a matter of correctness. You can, broadly speaking, you can solve any problem with one of them with the other and, and vice versa. So it, it becomes much more really a question of taste than, than correctness. Uh, Closure also has uh, CSP, uh, so uh, communicating sequential processes. It does, yes, absolutely. Uh, and um, how how does that come into the picture? Um, so so CSP is a, a form of interprocess communication based around channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in many ways, it's quite similar to the actor model. Um, again, actually, it kind of boils down to a question of uh, of taste. Um, you can convert a program that makes use of closures channels into a program that makes use of actors and vice versa. So I tend to think about it as more a question of what's natural for the for the problem that I'm trying to solve. So if I'm dealing with a problem that intrinsically uses cues, for example, then um, the CSP approach is a, is a very good one because a, a channel is basically a queue. If I'm dealing with something where I have more um, diffuse state distributed over a, a relatively large data structure, then that would be when I might choose to uh, to use a, a different approach. But but in a lot of ways, this is what makes Clojure powerful because uh, this is this is the thing that um, uh, Rich Hickey keeps talking about: the decomplexing of these things mm-hmm. because. You've got uh, immutable data structures, uh, which are completely um, uh, dissociated from the um, 
the IPC that you're using, you can mix and match these things much more freely in Clojure than you can in, in most other languages, mm-hmm. um, which, which gives the programmer uh, both more flexibility but also more confidence that what's going to come out the other end um, is actually going to work. Uh, and how things such as like async await and uh, come into the picture when we talk about uh, concurrency parallelism? Um, so async and await um, is uh, it's more to do with concurrency than it is to do with parallelism. It's a it's a way of suspending execution until some value or some condition has happened that will then allow you to to continue. And it's a way of doing that um, very explicitly so that you can see in the program flow uh, when that that point at which you wait happens and when the continuation then then takes over. Um, And it's mainly uh, used in contrast to callbacks, um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure anybody who's uh, who's tried this has come across the concept of callback hell, uh, where you end up with these deeply nested callbacks, and it becomes very, very difficult to see the flow of control within the program. Async mm-hmm. await is a way of solving the same kind of problem, but while keeping the control flow of the program much more visible when reading the source code. Uh, right. Um, so uh, in Clojure, so we have sort of um, the way I think about this sometimes it's like we have Clojure, which is on JVM, and then we have Clojure Script, uh, which is on JavaScript, JavaScript platform. Um, when I use um, any kind of async uh, primitives, be it promises, be it uh, we talk about async await or callbacks, um, is there any way that uh, this uh, the way we think about uh, is it parallelism or is it async programming depends so much on the platform um at, at one level no in the sense that um you know, the, the code that you write should work correctly in both places mm-hmm. in the other sense yes in the javascript almost by its nature is not um parallel um, there are some very limited uh, facilities within JavaScript, uh, within a browser, that will allow you to have true parallelism, but they are difficult to use. They're, they're kind of hidden away. Um, and in reality, pretty much all of the code that you're going to run um, in Java, sorry, in JavaScript is, is going to be um, running on a, on a single hardware thread so right. so you're you're going to get concurrency by using these approaches but you're you have to work very hard to get parallelism in javascript whereas on the java side of things now you really can run multiple threads in parallel so if you've got eight cores inside your computer you can have eight things happening genuinely at the same time but from the programmer's point of view it really shouldn't make any difference um, it's just that if you manage to leverage the parallelism, you'll see things going significantly faster uh, than if you weren't able to do so. But the the techniques available to you within um, uh, within Clojure are, are pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess though now is probably the time to mention uh, that one of the important 
reasons for distinguishing between concurrency and parallelism is non-determinism. Mm. Uh, so when you're writing concurrent code, you are always uh, likely to come across non-determinism. So, so what that means is you, you take the same piece of code, you run it in what looks like the same circumstances, but you get two different answers when you do that. Or mm -hmm. you might get two different answers when you do that. Okay. Now, if you're dealing with a genuinely concurrent problem, that's actually perfectly okay and, and correct. Um, the, the example that I tend to, to use here is of a bank account. So, so let's say you have $100 in your bank account and two different transactions come into your account at the same time. One of them is trying to take $80 out of your account. One of them is trying to take $90 out of your account. And they both arrive at exactly the same time. It's perfectly correct for the final results to be the $80 transaction succeeds and the $90 transaction is denied or for the $90 transaction to succeed and the $80 transaction to, to, uh, to fail. Both of those outcomes are correct. Um, and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't say that the, the program was behaving incorrectly by, by giving you different answers in those circumstances. But then if you look at a problem like the one we were talking about before with image analysis or image processing, if you're, right. uh, say, increasing the brightness of every pixel in an image, just because you choose to do that on eight different cores doesn't mean that you should expect different answers each time. I mean, all you're doing is increasing the brightness of every pixel in the image and you expect exactly the same answer each time. Mm -hmm. So if you use uh, techniques which are designed to provide concurrency, so enclosure, these are things like uh, async await and atoms and software transactional memory and so on. If you use those um, uh, tools mm -hmm. to implement a parallel program, the danger is if you get it wrong, and, and Clojure is much better than most languages, so you're, this is a much smaller danger in Clojure, but nevertheless, it is a potential danger if you get it wrong. You might end up with something that shouldn't be non-deterministic becoming non-deterministic because you made a mistake. So Clojure also provides um, facilities such as reducers and transducers, mm -hmm. which give you the ability to create a parallel solution, not a concurrent solution, a parallel solution, um, which is guaranteed to be deterministic and give you the same answer every time, Mm -hmm. as long as you use it correctly, obviously. I mean, there are ways of screwing it up, but, but let's leave that to one side for now. Um, and uh, that that kind of understanding of, of whether you're dealing with a concurrent program or a, or a parallel program is part of the reason why understanding this distinction is an important one. Because if you're dealing with something where, where it's just about parallelism and there isn't any genuine um, problem level uh, parallel uh, concurrency then um, using solutions like reducers and transducers might be more appropriate mm -hmm. uh, can we dive uh, is it fine to dive between the difference between uh, reducers and transducers um, so I probably need to hold my hand up here and say the the book I wrote back in 2014 mm -hmm. and at the time I wrote the book 
reducers were uh, were available and in, and in wide use, but transducers were only just starting to come in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, transducers now are a much more established technology within Clojure. Uh, but as it happens, I haven't really had an opportunity to to make heavy use of them. Um, so I know they exist, and I know they provide a degree of overlap of functionality between uh, transducers and reducers, but I'm not in a position to talk authoritatively about what that difference is. Oh, that's fine. Um, um, should we navigate uh, uh, to the next topic, which is the Lambda architecture, or do you believe uh, is there more to unpack when it comes to parallelism? Um, so maybe before we go to <laughs> Lambda architecture, it would yeah. be worth talking a little bit about data parallelism because I think this sure. is an area of um, programming which very few people are aware of, um, but it is actually a spectacularly powerful programming technique uh, if you've got the kind of problem for which it's uh, applicable. Um, So so maybe the the best starting point is um, image processing, uh, because image processing was the original problem that, that managed to leverage data parallelism effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's now branched out into many other areas, but but image processing was was where it started. So, image processing is is almost the best possible task for uh, for data parallelism because you are typically performing the same operation millions of times a second, or and the only difference is that you're performing that operation on slightly different data. Um, so when you're when you're rendering a 3D image in um, your favorite game, for example, mm-hmm. um, the the graphics processing unit inside your computer is drawing and shading and texturing millions of little teeny tiny triangles, mm-hmm. um, and the work required to shade and um, and draw and, and texture one triangle is basically the same as any other triangle. You're just putting it in a different point of the image, and you're um, you're doing you're lighting it slightly differently depending upon uh, the various different light sources. So the the people who've been building graphics processing units have have created these incredibly powerful um, uh, chips which can perform these relatively simple operations extremely. Um, uh, parallelized. Mm-hmm. So you, there might be 32 of these operations or 128 of these operations all going on simultaneously. Uh, much, much higher levels of parallelism than you will get by having, say, eight different cores inside your inside your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's there, and that's the reason why we have very responsive 3D games. It's why the, the the GUIs that you see in modern operating systems like uh, like MacOS are as slick as they are. But those GPUs can now be programmed so that you can write other kinds of software on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some problems for which this works very nicely. There'll be other problems for which it doesn't. But if you've got the kind of problem where um, you can leverage that sort of functionality, there are massive performance benefits to be gained. Um, you know, you, instead of talking about an ATEX kind of um, performance increase that you might get from from using multiple cores, we're talking about you know thirty two or or 
100 times um, performance gains. So it's always worth being aware that that's a possibility and thinking about whether the problem you're dealing with is a problem um, where that's uh, that's going to be uh, a potential approach for you. Um, and I guess it's also worth just being aware that there are an awful lot of things that are happening now widely in the industry. Um, so this is things like machine learning. Pretty much all of the popular machine learning frameworks leverage GPUs or something like GPUs very, very heavily in order to get the, the levels of performance that we're, that we're currently seeing. Mm -hmm. So even if it, you don't find yourself writing this kind of data parallel code directly, you'll almost certainly be using it if you're making use of one of these machine learning libraries. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see any other areas uh, that would be uh, a good material for using a GPU? Um, so it's that's an interesting question. Um, the, the, the area where GPUs or, or GPU-like things seem to be really uh, effective at the moment is running neural nets. And of course, the thing about neural nets is you, you can pretty much solve any problem you like using neural nets. Um, so, uh, for example, one of the things I've, I've worked on quite a lot in the past is natural language processing. And if you try to implement natural language processing algorithms directly on GPUs, it, it's actually quite difficult. You know, GPUs are designed to work well with um, very regular numerical data, and it could be quite difficult to, to think of ways of turning um, English language or you know, whatever other language text into data structures that can be processed effectively by GPUs. But... If you approach the problem by creating um, uh, neural nets in order to solve it, and then you run the neural net on the GPU, actually you do find yourself being able to solve much more general problems um, and leverage the power of the GPU. But it's it's kind of doing so at one remove, if that makes sense. Will there be anything else when it comes to parallelism? Um, I, I'm sure there's lots of lots of other things coming. Um, so we, we've been speaking mainly about closure in this conversation, and it, it's mm -hmm. maybe worth mentioning an area where closure is not especially strong, mm -hmm. and that's when you're dealing with distributed memory. Uh, so the, the kind of techniques that we've been talking about work very well when you have shared memory. So mm -hmm. you have, you know, let's say, eight cores in your, in your computer, and all of those cores have access to the same memory. Um, and that's great at the moment, because right now, today, those are the kind of architectures most computers are. But in just the same way as we hit a bottleneck, um, whatever it was, 10, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. when individual CPU cores could not get any faster, and the only way that we could get faster was by having more and more cores, there's another bottleneck coming, and that's the memory bottleneck. And we're not there yet. Um, if you've got eight or 16 cores in your, in your computer, you can have memory accessed by all of them pretty much as is. But when you start getting a long way past that, you know, if you get up to 32 or 64 or 128 cores, now it becomes very, very difficult to have a shared memory space between all of them. Um, so what's almost certainly going to happen is that at some point uh, we're going to start to have chips where each 
CPU has its own local memory or some group of CPUs have their own local memory. Mm -hmm. And the chip will start to look like a little network. Um, you know, it, it might only be one chip, but it'll it'll logically, from the programmer's point of view, look like four or eight uh, separate computers where you need to talk over a network rather than mm -hmm. through memory. And that, at the moment at least, isn't somewhere where Clojure is particularly strong because Clojure doesn't have a, a particularly good network concurrency um, solution. You can you can leverage other ones. So you can use Acker, for example, which came from the Scala world. You can use Acker very happily within Clojure, but Clojure doesn't really have a native solution to that problem as, as things currently stand. Mm -hmm. uh, can we explore a bit more Acker? Um, yes. So so Acker, well, actually, Acker is huge. Um, Acker pretty much supports every concurrency model under the sun. But the the, the place where Acker got started. And what it's best known for is support for actors. Um, and actors are a message passing approach which works very well between different computers. So you can have one actor running on one computer, another actor running on another computer, and messages are passed between them um, over the network pretty much um, transparently. Um, you, you obviously have to be aware of the fact that if you send large amounts of data between actors, it might take a long time because it's going to have to be transferred over the network. Mm -hmm. But it's a it's a much more transparent way of, of doing that than explicit network communication mm -hmm. over HTTP or, or whatever it might be. Um, so my guess is that at some point, Clojure is probably going to have to um, to put in place a a good solution of its own. And that, that might be a wrapper around a library like Acker, or it might be a closure native solution. But at some point, it's going to become necessary to have that kind of um, non-shared memory solution uh, alongside the, the, the shared memory solutions that Clojure has right now. Mm -hmm. Does ACA, is it is that an acronym? Does it stand for anything? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I actually, I have no idea where the uh, where the name Aka comes from. I'm sure I can look it up, but I don't know where it comes from. How do we navigate next? What do you think would be a good topic? Um, so you spoke about the Lambda architecture. I, yeah. So, so I think that that chapter, the chapter on the Lambda architecture, is probably the chapter of the book that has aged least well. I think all of all of the other chapters, still broadly speaking. Yeah, what I said in, in those chapters is just yeah. as true today as it was when I wrote it. The Lambda architecture is still used, but uh, the particular flavor of the, of the Lambda architecture that I wrote about in the book is, is really quite dated um, mm -hmm. and is dependent upon uh, the, the vagaries of uh, the technology that was around at the, at the time I was writing the book, which was... Um, uh, yeah, mainly Hadoop um, and then mm -hmm. a bunch of different stream processing technologies. I think these days a more integrated solution such as Apache Spark mm -hmm. would probably be a, a more useful approach. And because, of, because Apache Spark is a much more integrated system, you probably wouldn't need to separate the batch layer and the speed layer uh, that I speak about in the um, uh, in the chapter to the to the same degree um, mm -hmm. as I wrote about in in that chapter. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So yeah, you mentioned ACA and uh, are there any other tools uh, that are like applied in different uh, languages uh, that are used for all of those techniques that are like prominent? Um, so there, there are certainly languages out there that have a particularly strong concurrency story. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the one, if, if someone was looking for a good counterpoint to closure, Um, the language I'd probably suggest that was worth a look is Elixir. Uh, so Elixir is a, it's like Clojure, it's a, uh, a functional language, but it's a non-pure functional language. The, the difference is that it's hosted on the Erlang virtual machine, mm-hmm. and it leverages an awful lot of the work that, that was done inside Erlang uh, around the actor model. Um, It's it's interesting because it has a different flavor from Clojure. Um, it's because it's built around uh, actors. It supports distributed memory right from day one, uh, which is one of the weaknesses we were talking about with Clojure. Um, it also has a much stronger focus on fault tolerance and recovery from errors. Um, so one of one of the things that will always be true is that if you want to have a, a piece of software that can survive hardware failure, so you know somebody walks past your computer and kicks the um, power cord cable out of the wall, mm-hmm. you, you doesn't matter how cleverly you've written your, your software, if it's only running on one computer, your software is going to stop working. Right. Um, so uh, Erlang and Elixir built on top of it have been, has been designed from the outset to cope with that kind of failure. Uh, and it allows you to write fault-tolerant systems which are much more resilient than you can write in almost any other language. And the the heart of that is the concurrency model because true fault-tolerant software has to be concurrent because true fault-tolerant software has to run on multiple separate machines. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess I assume uh, just thinking about it, there are different uh, also models for this. So uh, there is a mo- uh, are you familiar with CARP? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, CARP is a model used in like um, uh, Unix and different operating systems where you mo- where you sort of have two instances of uh, sort of the same system configured on different machines, and you set up uh, like you know a, a backup. Uh, like a primary and secondary server. Uh, and I was wondering if does, uh, this comes uh, uh, in the same flavor where you... Uh, I'm just wondering, how do you set up a system, like a software system, uh, that, as you mentioned, if someone kicks out the cable, uh, that this still works uh, somehow? Uh, so Sure. So um, Erlang achieves this by having uh, basically multiple processes arranged in a hierarchy. Um, and the processes at the top of the hierarchy supervise the processes beneath, below them. Um, so if one of the processes below uh, one of, of, these, uh, of these processes fails, it will notice it, and that's the noticing it is built into uh, the Erlang runtime. So you don't have to write any code in order to, to see that one of your processes has died. Mm-hmm. And then when it notices, it can decide what action it should take. Um, and it's it's important to realize that this is dealing with 
two quite different types of fault. So there's the type of fault we were just talking about, which is a hardware failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and clearly, if there's a hardware failure, you know, the program is the, the it's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so the only way that you can solve the, the problem is to bring up an, another process on a different piece of hardware. Right. Um, and Erlang will do that for you automatically. That's that's part of what um, part of what the runtime provides out of the box. But there are also failures that occur because of programming errors. Uh, in fact, there are probably more errors that occur as a result of programming errors than errors that occur uh, as a result of hardware failures. Um, so Erlang also handles those kinds of those kinds of uh, problem as well, um, and it's it handles it using a similar kind of approach, which is that uh, the, um, the the lower level process will fail because of a because of an error. Um, in fact, Erlang has a, a po- not a policy but a style. Uh, of uh, crashing rather than trying to handle uh, unforeseen circumstances. So um, it, the, the, the jargon is let it crash. That's, that's the, uh, the airline motto. Mm-hmm. So the sub-process will crash, but then the supervisor process will notice that it has crashed and will uh, bring up a new process or restart the, the crashed process or Take what other, what other, whatever other action is the appropriate action to take for that particular error. Okay, um, right. Um, so, uh, would there be anything else to explore um, when it comes to those topics? Um, I don't think so. I mean, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty good survey. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there there are obviously other models of concurrency which which are out there, or other models of parallelism which are out there. Um, the one that I wanted to write about in the book, but but couldn't find a good way to do it, was uh, data parallelism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is that it, it's it's a very widely used and very powerful technique, but it's not really used at the level of software. It's used at the level of hardware. So uh, if you're designing a a chip using uh, VHDL, for example you are writing a data parallel program, but it's a data parallel program which is compiled to hardware rather than a data parallel program which is compiled to bytecode or or machine language. Um, So I I wanted to write about that because it is a a really powerful um, concurrency model, but there is there isn't really a language out there that leverages it other than languages like uh, VHDL, and I, I just thought that it was going to be too much to ask the reader to to go and buy a, a an ASIC programmer and a, and uh, you know and start writing VHDL. But I I don't know whether I, you know it's it's not the sort of approach that the average programmer in the street is likely to use anytime soon. But I do think it's it's interesting to know about it mm-hmm. uh, and and appreciate that it is being used under your feet inside um, the CPU that you're running on top of. Um, so if we ever do a second edition of the book, maybe maybe we will find a way of squeezing data parallelism in there somehow. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your knowledge. Uh, uh, I think you have really uh, depth uh, in there, and uh, I'm sure we could talk about some different topics. Uh, but yeah, um, it's been great. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for asking me. Cool. 
So I, I towards the end this. of the podcast, uh, uh, Paul mentioned yeah, a couple of times worst. data parallel, where he actually meant data flow, and he pointed out after listening to this uh, that it should be corrected. So here it is. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider supporting it by rating it on your platform and telling others about it. You can also support it directly by buying subscription at closure.stream on or or sponsoring it on GitHub sponsors. All the details in the show notes below.